This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Delia Lin. Delia is a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Delia joined me to talk about the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. We talked about the history of modern China as well as Xi Jinping's governing ideology and aims. Now, I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio Dr. Delia Lin. And uh, Delia is an academic at the University of Melbourne. She lectures in Chinese studies at the Asia Institute, and that is part of the arts faculty. And we're going to be talking in just a moment about the founding of the People's Republic of China, which was 70 years ago today. So it's a very important date for a number of reasons, political, cultural, social, and uh, no doubt, Many people are aware that China has a long and ancient history uh, in terms of its existence, but the modern form of China, the Communist Party state version of China that we see today, is 70 years old. So I now welcome Delia into the studio to talk about this. Hi, Delia. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. It is great. And Let's, before we get into this subject matter, I'm just interested in why you particularly chose this field to focus on in your academic um, professional life, because, you know, it's something that one must be really committed to and, you know, you must work substantially hard to actually achieve the things you have so far in your career. Uh, well, uh, good question. Um, I came from different disciplines. I was trained in linguistics um, back in China, uh, in English linguistics, actually. And uh, then when I came to Australia in 1997, pursuing my PhD, I was thinking about what area to be focusing on. And in the beginning, I wanted to focus on translation studies and looking at how words have been translated and used. Um, but then uh, that was what I was trained in, in translation studies and also linguistics. So I've always been interested in words and the power of words and, and ideas behind words. Mm. But at the time when I was pursuing my PhD at Griffith University, um, back then, I was fascinated with one word, um, which is su <laughs> um, That word, we can't really find a good English translation of it. Uh, mm. there, were, there have been many translations and, and roughly it's translated as human quality. But the fascinating thing about this word is that it became so ubiquitous and it was used everywhere in policies and during a very short period of time it became extremely popular. Mm. So I decided to, to look at that word and why it became so popular and what it is in me uh, that I'm rejecting using that word at all. Um, so I wanted to find out ideas behind it and how the process of the development of that word. So that's all how it all came about. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, in your book that you're just referencing there, which was published in 2017, um, you say that Sucha only rose to prominence in the late 1980s, but has permeated official and intellectual discourse and is used by people who live in China as well and presumably beyond. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that word itself, of course, you could have found that word in ancient Chinese literature, but meant totally differently. Mm. Um, but then as a modern word, it was actually a translation from Japanese, and which was a translation from German. So it was a translated concept. But of course, then when that word was introduced to China, uh, in modern China, contemporary China, that it went through a long process of development. But it has, uh, it was a word that was um, randomly used by, by people to refer to sort of qualities um, and also was used in agriculture as well to look at qualities of uh, of, uh, of plants, young plants, mm. of rice, rice plants basically. And um, and then it rose to prominence actually in the early 80s and to mid-80s. By mid-80s, that word has already been uh, extremely popular and there were so many compounds that have been created out of that word. So you could actually talk about a, a person's psychological suzhi, a person's uh, moral suzhi, a person's overall suzhi. Uh, so it became a, a word uh, that, uh, and also a concept, an idea uh, that uh, that is used to make sense of the world and make sense of China and also development of individual and also society and nation as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like it's a really flexible term that can be used for different purposes, doesn't exactly it? Exactly right. Yeah, and so you write about suzhi gao and suzhi di. Um, as being two different kinds of ways of using it and describing a person or assessing their worth or quality level. How is sutra used at the moment in these kind of ways of people assessing each other and their conduct? The the word was has been fully developed in uh, mid eighties with all those compounds and all that, and there were many many intellectuals um, wrote about it. So that whole process was a complex process, and and I traced the entire process how that word, how the ideas get socialized, and and also how that is um, related to traditional ideas of Confucian, especially mm-hmm. Confucianism, um, to look at why uh, that has gradually become what we call habitus, a kind of habit. Uh, that people don't think about it, are taken for granted, there was no resistance to it. Um, it's used in many different ways in everyday life. So as you've just mentioned, uh, there's lower suja and high suja. So it's a it's a magic word that can be differentiated and totalized at the same time. So um, if anything happens, you could say, well, that's due to uh, the lower suja, lower particular type of suja or that person, which mm-hmm. also means that this person's overall suja is, is in question. And that could justify when it's used in political sense and that kind of discourse, that kind of way of looking at society and look at human beings can justify control, social control, justify any type of surveillance. Mm. And for example, um, the building of a Great Wall of China is justified around Suji. To say that there are people in China that have low Suji, they're not capable of discerning, of developing this media literacy, of discerning bad news, good news from bad news, or truth from, truth from lies, so that we have to build a Great Wall to protect the people. And then because of this prevalent use of suji, that kind of idea that human beings somehow they are insufficient, human beings require certain kind of control and pastoral care in order to make them become good citizens, uh, that kind of idea because so permeates into the society. So even when people question this type of surveillance, and I've met so many people who say, well, maybe the government has a good reason for doing that because indeed there were people who like kind of suji without thinking, well, is that 
rationalization logical or, mm. or, or, or can we actually have a different way of looking at the society? Yes, does that mean that um, individuals' behaviours must be regulated to a high level? Yeah, exactly. And all the time, because mm. every single behavior may be a manifestation of a lack of particular kind of suji. And then so the government uh, has to implement some sort of mechanism to make sure that your every aspect, because there were infinite compounds, there were infinite aspects. So that means that the government can actually exercise infinite control and and a control and also a kind of uh, pastoral uh, in the name of pastoral care mm. to human beings. Yeah, it does make me think it's quite a paternalistic way of oh, absolutely. treating one's citizens. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, because what, what it boils down to is that there were people that who would consider themselves as a civilising centre, uh, that they are actually in the position of civilising uh, the others or mm. of raising others uh, within us as a suture. And usually it is... It is uh, the patriarchal, it is the power, the authority, which is patriarchal authority uh, that does that. Yeah, well, let's bring in the government, the Chinese government, central government and the Chinese Communist Party, because that is obviously central to our discussion about a 70-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. For those who aren't au fait with Chinese history, and like it's a thousands and thousands of year history, so we won't get to all of that. But in terms of this pivotal moment that we're in now and the 70 years prior, before there was this so-called Chinese Republic or state, what was there? Because this is really the Mao Zedong era where there's a cultural revolution and China is not necessarily the China that we know today. What was the China of, of before before Mao Zedong. Yeah, oh, well, probably before, f- before, before Mao, Mao. And, and maybe after. So because I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of um, the 70-year point as, I guess, a, a kind of a marker of difference, but obviously it wouldn't be that clear-cut. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely right. There were continuities and there were differences. Mm. Absolutely. There was always a linkage to the past and Xi Jinping is doing that consciously uh, to build this cultural legitimacy, to build uh, this cultural nationalism as well, to say that, um, uh, to build the legitimacy of the PRC based upon culture, based mm. upon tradition or, or, or the kind of tradition that is uh, couched by the government or is kind of promoted by the government. So, um, um, of course, over, over the years, China has gone through, if you just look at the, the pictures, look at what the major events that have happened, uh, China, of course, today is a very different one to, to the one under under Mao uh, during Cultural Revolution. It's a very different country. Uh, so um, 70 years, that's from 1949 to, to, to now, and that really marks China as the longest surviving uh, communist regime, socialist regime, and it's massive, it's big, and with 1.4 billion people. Mm-hmm. And it seems that it's going strong, even though we also can argue that's fragile at the same time. Uh, so, And Xi Jinping certainly wanted... The interesting thing about uh, the Xi Jinping corset new, new, new era, uh, so the uh, political ideology that... Uh, with Xi Jinping's name etched to it, it's called uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Actually, Xi Jinping socialism <laughs> with Chinese characteristics for the new era. So, mm. so he would mark it as a new era. We're all different. We are very different now. But if you look at some underlying 
ways of doing things uh, that there were definitely continuities. But what is uh, particularly interesting about 70th anniversary is that uh, yesterday um, uh, Xi Jinping and also other top leaders visited uh, Mao Zedong Memorial Hall and that was extraordinary um, because uh, yes Mao Zedong's Memorial Hall would be visited by top leaders but usually on the the, the birthday of Mao Zedong mm. not during the founding, not during the celebration or before the celebration of the founding of the PRC. Um, because the PRC has been, uh, the Communist Party needed to be very careful uh, with uh, Mao Zedong and how to how to appraise him, how to assess him. Because after the Cultural Revolution, uh, the PRC, the Communist Party, did admit that Cultural Revolution was a mistake. Uh, but now uh, they've changed the story a little bit and also changed the story about Mao Zedong as well. So that was a very strong political message to show that Xi Jinping wanted to link somehow this new era with a Mao era, which is for us China watchers and who studied on China, this is fascinating, but it's also very scary as well. Uh, so what elements of the Mao era that he wanted to bring back, mm. and which is something uh, that um, that is sort of that we, we can wait to see. Yeah, well, some people have drawn the obvious kind of conclusions around this continuity or at least the similarities between leadership style or even um, the way that they're perceive their role Xi Jinping has like changed the rules essentially and said instead of having 10-year terms I'm going to govern until I die which could be any length of time and a lot of people I know who have been interested in this were quite um, surprised because well I mean that's something which of course would be kind of in a, in a Mao era in the sense of this deification almost of a singular figure of the of the Communist Party and the Chinese government, um, but also that he would almost single himself out in particular for the positive role that is, you know, governing a country, but also for the burden, which is being that governing leader for life and also then almost becoming a target, a self-anointed target of other political rivals. Mm. It, it's kind of interesting to see this grasp of power that has been happening. What do you make of Xi Jinping's decision to change the rule around leadership terms and putting himself in this very substantial singular mm, position? Mm. So yeah, um, very good question. I mean, something that is very difficult to find just one single answer. And it's a, it's a question uh, that I think everybody's pondering over. What, what, why, is, why would anyone do that yeah. without a successor, which is uh, really a game changer, uh, and without a successor uh, of the uh, PRC of the CCP, uh, then what's going to happen after after he dies, or if anything happens to him, who's going to continue with the work? Um, so that was uh, was very puzzling because from any um, common sense, uh, from any common s- of any any person's perspective, it's very difficult to perceive. It's very difficult to conceive uh, that kind of idea, but. If we look at the history of uh, the PRC and also the CCP, China actually has gone. If we just if we say China, in a, as a general in a general sense, uh, that has gone through many stages where where China could actually go many different ways. So when Xi Jinping took over in 2012, um, well end of or 2013 actually uh, officially, uh, and at end of 2012 there were many speculations on where Xi Jinping might take China to 
at the time. Um, and especially when he was saying the importance of constitutionalism, of constitution itself, and then uh, many um, Chinese people and also the elites were thinking that perhaps China um, is becoming, is go was going to become more liberal because with the economic development, with the liberalization of economy, uh, what's going to naturally happen uh, is that is liberalization of uh, civil liberty and also uh, more civil liberty, more more attention to human rights um, because people are more um, aware of the mm. individual rights, of the liberty rights, and, and they would like to participate in, in political life. And that's very natural, and especially uh, the rise of the middle class when they uh, were when they had uh, some economic power and naturally they would would like to participate um, more in decision making in the decision making process so it seems that china was on the way to democracy and indeed china could there were so many times china could and in the 80s as well so there were many many crossroads china mm -hmm. has passed many crossroads so at that time there was speculation as to where especially coming uh, with his background his father was a known uh, reformist and uh, well in, in the Chinese sense, right wind, but it means that uh, he would like to uh, make China a more dem democratic country. Uh, so coming from that background, and the speculation was that um, that he would take China on that path. But then very quickly, uh, that was proved wrong because uh, all the... Um, uh, um, speculations or media reports uh, on calling for constitutionalism uh, in China uh, were banned very quickly. So very quickly then people realized that probably he would take on China on a different path. So he was reflecting on what made China strong, but strong in the sense of wealth and power, in the sense of uh, in the sense of unity of the people. Uh, and of course, Mao invented the three uh, magic weapons: um, United Front and um, uh, Party Construction and all that. So, um, so he wanted to bring back, and, and somehow he thought that this would work uh, for China because at that time. A lot of problems that are that China was facing. One of them being uh, corruption uh, of the party leaders and also the cadres of the system. Uh, so that was uh, the first one of the first things he had to deal with. Uh, and then in Mao's era, that wasn't a problem. Um, but then, with coming with economic development, uh, then comes with enormous corruption. And somehow he had decided that the way to solve the problem is to bring discipline back. So disciplining uh, those 89 million party members and also uh, all the officials. So yeah. that's why that's why uh, he went on uh, this hardcore. It's very difficult to give a name to this kind of a regime, mm. and perhaps we can call it ideological state, which is uh, another similarity we see between Xi Jinping's era and the Mao's era. Uh, that ideological state means that there are. Uh, there are doctrines uh, that no one is allowed uh, to break. Uh, so there was uh, there were the political ideologies are everywhere. So today, if you ask ordinary Chinese people, is ideology real? They would tell you, yes, it is real. And everyone is aware uh, that there were there were constraints as to what they can say. Indeed, it reminds me of the controversy that's been happening around this corruption crackdown, which didn't um, spare anyone. It even affected Deng Xiaoping's family. There are so many controversies around taking back funds that 
you know, the party believes is theirs and the government's. How has Xi Jinping been received by his fellow party members and is that potentially why he's been securing his uh, position of power and ensuring that he does also head up the military? Yeah, absolutely, because um, uh, from his experience, he knew that fractions, I mean, fractions are always there. And he's, he's, uh, uh, we call him prisoning. He came from that revolutionary family. And he's seen the ups and downs of the officials. And he knew that the only way to stay in power um, is to uh, have a, a tightened grip on power and then not allowing any any different views because uh, that polit- the political struggle, and that's why also recently he used the word struggle, and he said battle and he said the the survival of the communist parties uh, is a process is 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 a process of struggling of uh, of or battling, you always have to battle with enemies. So enemies, mm. not just referring to external influences, but also enemies from within, uh, his own rivals. And he and we also saw how he treated his rivals and how he treated his uh, political enemies. So he knew that if he didn't grip, have a uh, have a, a tightened grip on power, that that he would end up like his father or like the rivals that he fought against. Mm. For background, how did his father end up? What was his fate? Oh, he was um, uh, so he was one of the top um, officials in China, mm. uh, vice premier. Um, but then um, he, his view was to liberalize, is to give people more more power, is to uh, to bring more de- democracy to the society. And uh, during Cultural Revolution, then he was removed from his post, and mm. the entire family was sent uh, to the countryside. Um, so uh, and and uh, so Xi Jinping has been through, has witnessed, and has been through all these hardships and suffering, and knowing that. Um, in in that position, um, you can be a hero one day and uh, uh, can be prisoner the next. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, it's interesting when we're looking at how Xi Jinping is formulating his leadership and his ideology and how that then is enacted. It's um, quite fascinating the threads that you highlight and that many others have highlighted in his thought that are harking back to a very, very ancient period in Chinese history, the Warring States period, for example. And some people have made comparisons between the Qing Dynasty's kind of leadership and his, which may or may not be complementary. And so I'm interested in those threads that are in his thought that we've seen in his book, for example, which you mentioned about the the types of people that he references and sources and quotes as being important to the education of Chinese um, Communist Party officials but also the broader society. And I'm thinking in particular about Confucianism and this interesting idea that really Mao was pushing against Confucianism and we've seen a return to the prominence of Confucianism. Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, Confucianism seems as always, always never, never left yeah. China, uh, and um, uh, and that's true. And not only, well, um, we call it ism, and as if it's a it's a coherent theory, mm. but Confucianism has never been a really a coherent theory. That's exactly why in early Republican era, uh, that uh, early revolutionaries, including Chen Duxiu, who is one of the was one of the founders of the P, of the uh, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, uh, was against Confucianism and believing that it was irrelevant to building modern modern China uh, precisely because the hierarchy uh, because of the, um, the the kind of patriarchal hierarchy that is embedded in Confucianism but the Chinese Communist Party has always has got two problems uh, one is that 
has always has to deal with tradition and also has to find some astrological always has this astrological crisis um, because it uh, it's not built on a it's kind of a borrowed idea, borrowed idea of Marxism as a kind of doctrine that is um, uh, in the constitution, in the party charter, and also in the constitution. But um, if we look at um, the relationship between Confucianism and the Communist Party, it's a very interesting one indeed, because Mao Zedong, in his young age, he was a, a ardent reader of Confucianism and a lover of Confucianism. And if you look at um, his um, complete works, uh, you actually found that uh, uh, he quoted, he, he actually has quoted Stalin the most, followed by uh, legalism and the Confucianism, uh, and Marxism was actually um, counted last. was the last. <laughs> so that was very uh, very interesting. Uh, so Confucianism was for for Mao Zedong was used as ammunition for building his ideological legitimacy. Um, so uh, in order to to use it against liberalism, and um, then. His idea sort of turned uh, during the Cultural Revolution and Confucianism again was used uh, against um, the um, other, other ideas. So now the revival of Confucianism started in the 1990s actually after, after the Cultural Revolution and then at the beginning of, um, or, or especially after Tiananmen Square, after 1989. Uh, then in the 90s, we saw, uh, we saw a revival of uh, Confucianism in many different ways. There were, there were government-endorsed or government-sanctioned um, and, and uh, campaigns to bring back Confucian teaching and to build, uh, to include more articles on media newspapers on Confucianism and publication of more books and also um, government-supported programs, supported projects to work on Confucianism, and also a lot of intellectuals were participating in in it as well uh, to try to bring Confucianism uh, back in different ways. But then different intellectuals would have different uh, different interpretation of Confucianism because it's it's never coherent, and that different people can really take different bits and pieces mm. uh, from it. For those who aren't aware of Confucius and his teachings um, and the many ways that you could interpret it, are some of the things that the Communist Party since the 1990s have picked up on around the social attitudes and behaviours of their population? Is it mainly around ethics or morality and um, social citizenry or are there other elements of Confucianism that have also kind of been pushed by various leaders of the CCP? Yeah, so there were different uh, elements that were picked up from uh, Confucianism. But one thing that is in common is that to uh, make people feel uh, that uh, the Communist Party is sort of uh, is anchored uh, on this tradition. It's uh, it's um, uh, to to show that uh, there was a sort of lineage in the way that uh, they govern the population. There was uh, there was uh, uh, there was some cultural legitimacy in there. The government respects tradition, respects culture, but a culture defined uh, by uh, by the party, but also also draw on some ideas of uh, of Confucianism. So, if we really want to look at Confucianism, despite all those differences and different ways of interpreting Confucianism, if you look at the the kind of uh, pool of knowledge that one could draw from Confucianism or that has drawn from Confucianism as a political philosophy, as a way of governing, is this importance on transforming thinking that human beings 
are all manageable. Somehow, uh, the, if if the government tries very hard, they can they can mold the citizens, condition the citizens in such a way uh, that would not only make them better people, but also make society better and also make the country stronger. So that kind of idea that somehow uh, think believing that believing that all those different various problems in society could be attributed to this one reason, uh, that is the human beings, that if the government tries very hard to mold human beings in the society, mm -hmm. then all problems will be resolved. So that kind of fundamental idea. Uh, and also uh, Confucianism starts with this grandiose dream, this grand unity, uh, this vision of grand unity. Um, and we, we also know, see that Xi Jinping has the same idea of this, of this China dream, which is a vision for, for, for China. So uh, make people fixed on that vision and then all kinds of mechanisms or all the control mechanisms are well justified mm -hmm. uh, for that because that is to transform the citizens uh, to be able to work for that grand dream. And it's a massive undertaking because I feel like most people probably don't understand the scale, size and diversity of China as a state as a country because it has a number of provinces I believe it's 28 or 29 yeah. and there's as you said in um, just earlier at the beginning of the interview 1.4 billion people and growing how does one manage to create a sense of unity and social cohesion if that is the political goal that's already audacious if you were trying to achieve it for a small population like Australia. It's even more audacious when you're looking at China, the state, but also those who are Chinese citizens who are living elsewhere. What are your thoughts on this idea of social unity and social cohesion as being such a, an important project for China? And is it because it's so geographically large that it's important but also very difficult? Um, yes, a uh, 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 good question. So uh, when you deal with a population that is so diverse and that is so uh, different, there are different ways of doing it. So one way of doing it is to recognise uh, that differences and celebrate those differences as we do in Australia. And people are from different linguistic and cultural backgrounds and, and make people debate and make, make people learn from each other and to improve or to encourage this pluralism and celebrate the differences. Um, and the other way of doing it uh, which is what uh, what's embedded in Confucianism is to create this unification. Is somehow believing uh, that there was one single answer to diverse problems. There was one single idea uh, that is better for the whole population. So. It's an enormous project because if you want to produce this social unity, uh, this cohesion, uh, you can't really stop people from thinking differently. Uh, you can't stop people from uh, having different views or disagreeing uh, with uh, the sanctioned ideas uh, imposed by the government. It doesn't matter whether you do it through coercion or whether you do it through a more, a more uh, covert uh, way. That's why if you look at uh, imperial China, if you look at modern China, if you look at contemporary China, uh, then the way that the government somehow does it, the ruler does it, it's, very, it's a way that, that would make people believe that this is the best way of 
governing. So that's why there were a few sort of, I call it uh, axioms uh, that have to be built into uh, this whole project and this kind of civilizing project. They're kind of some, some, some habitual um, ideas uh, that run through it. Um, so the ideas uh, uh, such as there are people in the society that need to be transformed, that need to be, um, their quality needs to be raised. That's why this Suja discourse became so popular. This idea that uh, somehow the population needs to be improved in order to improve the nation. And also the idea that individuals do not exist uh, without a community, that individuals do not exist without a strong state. So under Xi Jinping and also in the previous eras as well, uh, that one idea that is pretty much implanted into people's mind also is that without the party, there was no a nation. Without the nation, there was no family. Without the family, there was no individual. So individual comes at the end, party first, and then and then party, nation, family, individual. Mm. So that kind of uh, that kind of logic. It's fascinating, Delia. I feel like I'm getting very well informed of and understanding the significance of this anniversary a lot better, given the history that we've been covering. In terms of the celebrations and the performative elements of this 70-year anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. There are many elements to it that we've already been witnessing. And um, there was a ceremony to give medals to very significant figures in Chinese history, scientists and military figures, um, men and women. And then we also have been promised a kind of huge military parade with many, many people involved. but 300,000. Yeah, and marching and also the kind of weaponry, new technology, military technology that will be on show. What do you think the types of things that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are doing in this 70-year anniversary, what do you think it is signalling to its own population but also to, for example, Hong Kong and to other countries like Australia. With this grand celebration, it's a choreographed, of course, uh, display uh, with 300,000 people participating in it, uh, but they're carefully chosen and uh, there have been many rehearsals of the parade and ordinary people are not allowed to watch or not allowed to watch on the site uh, and also... um, for days that many restaurants have been closed down and uh, people who are close to who live close uh, to the site were asked to take holidays or asked to have the windows shut um, so without really general public participating in it but just with selected uh, participating in this kind of display and performance so uh, what is signaling to the world and to the Chinese uh, nationals themselves uh, is to say that China is strong. Um, the strength of China because during the military parade uh, there were some have been reported uh, there would be some advanced weapons shown as well. Uh, so to show that the might and the wealth of China to make people feel confident in the Communist Party because the Communist Party is experiencing uh, a tremendous uh, legitimacy crisis. So this is necessary for the party to uh, to demonstrate the strength and, and its opportunity for them to demonstrate their might and wealth. And and in fact, that has been, uh, it's not the first time, but this time is um, it's going to be the biggest, um, the biggest parade, and and because it's a it's a it's a critical time, and also uh, with all the 
well, in the Chinese Communist Party's eyes, the chaos everywhere in Hong Kong, the unrest and all that. So they need to convince uh, their own people and also convince uh, the world uh, that they are taking China on a a path, a um, a path of might and wealth. And that's how they can gain the trust of the people. Mm, get them behind the mm. project. Yeah, yeah, and it's working. This yeah. whole patriotic education and uh, this kind of uh, sort of uh, sentiment that the party is trying to uh, create uh, is actually working among the general public. Mm. But then there was uh, so many different views as well on, on WeChat. Uh, but then every uh, people who have different views and have to be very careful with uh, with what they say because um, uh, this is also the critical time that where uh, the Communist Party is uh, working very hard to ban uh, WeChat accounts and uh, to to ban different views as well. Mm. Uh, around the idea of the Communist Party and the central government being in their mind, a successful and viable model of governing um, for others to potentially emulate in some way. And I'm thinking about the interesting connection with the Soviet Union, which didn't make it to 70 years, and now seeing China making it and and celebrating that fact as being a, a kind of example of the fact that it can be successful, that it's created wealth, that it's um, given its citizens opportunities What are your thoughts on the ways that the Communist Party and the central government now is signalling to the world its um, success and uh, the kind of value of having this overarching ideology that we've been discussing that guides government? Yeah, so... um um, so Xi Jinping certainly is telling the world and telling its own people uh, that um, this is a China model and China sticks to it. So before Xi Jinping, a uh, very uh, big difference between Xi Jinping and his pretty and and his uh, uh, previous regimes is that uh, is that uh, the previous regimes were still in a very sort of defensive uh, kind of attitude to say, well, um, um, because they couldn't really answer the questions on human rights and and all the other concepts. But but uh, Xi Jinping is saying. That that, well, this is this is the way that China goes, and this is a model that can be emulated by other developing countries. And this focus on infrastructure, it, not only just the economic model, uh, but also uh, the political uh, ideology uh, as well. That uh, a political ideology that um, for Xi Jinping, uh, he he talks about this cultural determinism that because of the because of tradition, he said to the previous um, uh, Greek. Uh, Prime Minister, that um, uh, that your your model of liberal democracy is based on your uh, Greek tradition, and our model is based on Chinese tradition. But of course, Chinese t- tradition defined by the Communist Party. So. Uh, to uh, uh, to take uh, China on the path that he calls uh, the China model, and he calls a new style political system, political party system. So. Uh, and he calls on his people um, and also party members to have this confidence. So there's co- four confidences uh, that uh, that uh, Xi Jinping has been promoting, and one of them is cultural confidence, and the others are uh, confidence in the system. Uh, so to to say this is uh, where China is going, and in during this whole process, so we see a really systematic building 
of uh, new constitutions and systematic building of discourse to justify uh, this model. So uh, it is absolutely fascinating. Mm, it is. It's going to be even more fascinating to watch it evolve. And it's, as you I'm, are well aware, it's always unpredictable, though you can see some signs of things happening and changing. And as you say, the crossroads keep coming up and yeah. being bypassed. And the resistance is also very strong as well within yeah. the party and also without and amongst the, pop, uh, amongst the people as well. Mm. So we will see a very split uh, China in the in terms of uh, the way that people think uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the way that uh, things are done. So that's why it is unpredictable in the sense that it can go really any 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 way. Mm. Um, so absolutely fascinating to watch. Yeah, Delia, it's been so fascinating to speak with you, and I really appreciate you coming in to share with us your immense knowledge of China and the Chinese language and political philosophy, and um, all the best with everything you're doing on this. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Delia Lin, who is a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And we've been talking about the 70th anniversary of the foundation or formation of the People's Republic of China under the CCP.